After Lot and Avraham part ways, Hashem tells Avraham that he will inherit the land of Israel. He gives a further message to Avraham that he will have a child and his children will be as numerous as the stars. But between these two messages, we find a detailed description of a war between the alliances of four kings and five kings. This is Bereshit Yudalad Aleph, Genesis 14.1, Vayihi bimei Amraphel melech Shinar, Aryoch melech Elazar, Kidal Omer melech Elim, Vitidal melech Goim, Asum melchama et bera melech Sedom, Vet birsha melech Amora, Shinav melech Adma, Veshem Ever melech Tzvoim, Umelech Bela Hitzoar. Now it was in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Aryoch, the king of Elazar, Hadar Omer, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goyim. And they waged war with Ber, the king of Sodom, and with Birsha, the king of Gemorah, Shinav, the king of Adma, and Shemever, the king of Tzavoyim, and king of Bela, which is Tzoar. So Lot gets tangled up in this war. Abraham rescues him, and Lot returns to Sodom, where we find him in next week's Parsha. So at first glance, if you just deleted this episode, the narrative of the Chumash would read fine. So what are we supposed to gain? Why is there so much detail and, uh, in, in the Torah's description of this narrative? What's, what's its significance? So the Rav offers a fascinating interpretation of the significance of the war between the kings. It reads as follows. Quote, in Abraham's time, one block consisted of Amraphel, king of Shinar, who, according to Chazal, was Nimrod. He was a victorious warrior, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He expanded his territory. Like every great emperor and conqueror, he built new cities and thereby helped advance material civilization and technology. Nimrod himrid et kol haolam kulo. He led the entire world to rebel against Hashem. According to Chazal, the generation of the dispersion was intoxicated with its own material success and technology. Let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us dethrone the creator. Man reigns supreme and, by applying his mind, can conquer the universe. The generation of the dispersion sought power. Chazal say that if a worker fell to his death, they didn't care. But if they lost a brick, they would mourn it. They were power-loving, power-crazed, power-intoxicated. Abraham rejected the generation of the dispersion. He saw a generation that had gone berserk and was mad for power. Opposing this block, there was another, represented by Sodom, which had the dust of gold. Its inhabitants were very rich and lived in luxury. This block represented the human quest for unlimited pleasure. Thus, there was a clash of two powers, two military alliances, two armies. But more than that, there was a clash of two outlooks on the world, of two ethical systems, so to speak. End quote. So that's the rub in his uh, in a collection of notes based on his shurim uh, collected by the Torah Rav Foundation called Abraham's Journey. Interestingly, Albert Einstein provides a remarkably similar description in an essay titled Why Do They Hate the Jews, which was published in uh, Collier's magazine in 1938. And uh, his, his, uh, an excerpt from his essay reads as follows, quote, In political life, I see two opposed tendencies at work, locked in constant struggle with each other. The first optimistic trend proceeds from the belief that the free unfolding of the productive forces of individuals and groups essentially leads to a satisfactory state of society. 
It recognizes the need for a central power placed above groups and individuals, but concedes to such power only organizational and regulatory functions. The second pessimistic trend assumes the free interplay of individuals and groups leads to the destruction of society. It thus seeks to base society exclusively upon authority, blind obedience, and coercion. Actually, this trend is pessimistic only to a limited extent, for it is optimistic in regard to those who are and desire to be the bearers of power and authority. The adherents of the second trend are the enemies of the free groups and of education for independent thought. They are, moreover, the carriers of political anti-Semitism. End quote. So interesting, earlier in the essay, Einstein articulates his central thesis, which reads as follows. Hence the hatred of the Jews by those who have reason to shun popular enlightenment. More than anything else in the world, they fear the influence of men of intellectual independence. I see in this the essential cause for the savage hatred of Jews raging in present-day Germany. To the Nazi group, the Jews are not merely a means for turning the resentment of the people away from themselves, the oppressors. They see the Jews as a non-assimilable element that cannot be driven into uncritical acceptance of dogma, and that, therefore, as long as it, is, as it exists at all, threatens their authority because of its insistence on popular enlightenment of the masses." End quote. The Rub notes that uh, Avraham did not want to get involved in the conflict between the kings. He would have preferred to stay out of it, but because of his loyalty to Lot, he was forced to get involved. And uh, he describes, again, the role of Avraham in this setting as follows. Quote, of course, both blocks were opposed by Avraham. He would have wanted to remain neutral outside the entire drama of the clash between these two mutually exclusive ideologies and political systems. Suddenly, Avraham was pulled in, for Lot was taken captive. At this point, Avraham had to side with one block against another. He had no choice. We cannot imagine Avraham as an ally of Sodom or Gomorrah, of people who were exceedingly wicked and sinners before the Lord. But he couldn't help it, as Lot was a prisoner. End quote. My students once asked me why the Jews have so many different enemies. Perhaps the answer lies in this description of the war between the kings. The war between the kings reflects the history of the Jew in the world. There are two opposing ideologies, constantly in battle with one another. The Jewish people find themselves stuck in the middle. We are neither committed to the endless pursuit of power, nor the endless pursuit of pleasure. We are neither fully capitalist nor fully communist. We are not wholly democrat or republican, capitalist or socialist, collectivist or individualist. We live lives of nuance and complexity balancing the needs of the individual with society, pursuing prosperity while prioritizing charity, promoting freedom while managing competing commitments. We are not really a culture, not merely a religion, not just a political entity. Often we find ourselves outsiders as a result. And as the Rav expresses, quote, Avraham is called here Avraham Ha'ivri. He stands on one side, me'ever echad, the entire rest of the world on the other side. The quote from uh, Breshid Rabbah. Avraham the Ivri means Avraham the singular one, the lonely one. Avraham from the other side of the river. End quote. And perhaps this is what it means to, uh, to be a Hebrew, an Ivri, often simply the other. And it's notable when my uh, uh, great-grandparents immigrated to the United States, the nationality still, even though they came from, uh, you know, countries in, in, uh, in the broader European uh, bloc, 
but it says nationality Hebrew. 